Welcome to Worldview, a foreign affairs podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Chris Dooley. While many of us here at the Irish Times were taking time out over Christmas to catch up with family and friends and recharge the batteries ahead of the new year, our colleague Sally Hayden was on the Mediterranean on board the Alan Kurdi, a boat operated by a German charity dedicated to saving the lives of migrants and refugees attempting to make the hazardous sea crossing from Libya to Europe. I'm glad to say Sally is back on dry land and is here in our podcast studio to tell us about her experience on board the Alan Cardi, what she witnessed and what she learned about what's happening and what is the deadliest migration route in the world. Sally, thanks for coming in. Thanks for having me. Um, Sally, the boat you were on was operated by a German charity called CI. Tell us about CI and what they do. CI was set up in 2015 when uh, massive numbers of refugees and migrants started coming into Europe. By now, such images no longer shock. Tiny boats crammed with desperate people, making a nearly impossible journey across the Mediterranean. Almost 137,000 refugees and migrants arrived in Europe by sea in the first six months of this year. CI have been involved in more than 14,000 rescues since 2015. They operate a boat called the Alan Kurdi, which is named after the toddler who died in the Mediterranean in 2015. I'm sure everybody remembers the photos that went pretty much all over the world, showing him lying on the shore like with waves crashing over him. The boat, I think, has saved more than 400 people this year. Before you tell us about your time on the boat and what you've experienced, just tell us a bit more about the Mediterranean crossing, because as you said, you have been reporting on this now for several years. Why is that crossing so perilous you know, for people trying to make it from Africa to Europe? So essentially Libya is kind of like a transit country for people who are trying to get to Europe from across Africa, um, fleeing wars, dictatorships and also what are so-called economic migrants, people who are just looking for more opportunity or to escape poverty and find a better life. Um, And they pretty much all head towards Libya where you can, you at least used to be able to easily get on a smuggler's boat as long as you had enough money to pay and try and cross over to Italy or to Malta. Um, but now it's it's become more difficult because a lot of NGO ships have kind of effectively been criminalised, like accused of um, aiding traffickers or, you know, criminalised under various, or prosecuted under various other kind of accusations and... Um, less, like the only big NGO, I think the only big organisation still working on search and rescue is MSF, um, Medicine Sans Frontier, and the others are all kind of smaller charities that you might not have heard of, but um, they're filling in the gaps. For a period of time, of course, EU member states, including Ireland, were sending naval vessels to the Mediterranean to rescue people from smugglers' ships that sank en route. And then that policy changed, didn't it? Yeah, so in March um, last year, 2019, there was a change um, to pull out the naval assets. So it used to be that there would be EU naval assets in the sea and they would have to help with rescues, you know, under international law. Like if you're a ship that's aware of another boat in distress, you have to be involved in the rescue. And so what has happened is that the EU is now only doing aerial surveillance. So they're still sending out planes and they're letting the Libyan Coast Guard know where the 
boats in distress are and the idea is that the Libyan Coast Guard will intercept those boats. So what they say they're trying to do is combat smuggling and shut down these smuggling routes, but they're funding the Libyan Coast Guard with tens of millions to intercept boats and bring people back to Libya. And the problem is that because they're so desperate to escape Libya, they'll just try again and again and again to cross. What was your first impression on meeting the crew and and your first impression also on seeing the boat and so on? Yeah, I mean, I've never spent that long on a boat, to be honest. So I uh, got a tour of it the first day I arrived, met some of the crew. There's, I think, eight professional crew. So they're paid people who are, you know, have specific qualifications related to sailing a boat. But then there are also a lot of volunteers, so volunteer paramedics, a doctor, um, people, engineers even, some of them are volunteers and they have just turned up because they really feel like this is important. You, you mentioned in the piece you wrote about it that the first thing that struck you was how small the boat was. It was smaller than you anticipated. That was something that really struck a chord with me because I thought even if I had signed up for this mission in the first place, which would be unlikely, that's the moment I would have cut and run, I think, when I saw a small boat. Yeah, I mean, it's not tiny, like, it's 300 tonnes, I think, and but um, the ship is more than 70 years old. It's a former East German research vessel, um, and I think that was used as a fishing vessel. It's also very slow. It moves at seven knots an hour, which is, like, not that fast, and it also, yeah, just has a lot of problems in terms of various things breaking down. The fact the boat was 70 years old, I mean, did that give you any pause for thought? I mean, I didn't think that it was dangerous. Like, I know that it has a German flag, which I also learned means that you have to follow a lot of stringent rules in terms of safety and who's crewing and what kind of conditions the boat is in to be able to sail. Um, We did have a shower. We had a washing machine and uh, there was very limited Wi-Fi. There were a lot of chores, so everybody on board split up the chores um, pretty much. So helping to prepare meals, uh, even washing the toilets was one of the chores. And I learned like being in a very small space, you have to be very careful, like not spreading your stuff around too much, not getting in each other's ways, even like blocking pathways is like a big problem and tell us something about the captain this is uh, Uwe Doll a German German guy yeah so hi my name is Uwe Doll I'm from Germany I'm the captain of Alan Cody and uh, I ride now on my watch so we yeah are... Uwe was cool he told me various things that had motivated him to get involved in sea rescues one of them was watching a movie called Sticks which is German but it's um, it's understandable in English and it's about a woman on a like a leisure boat that comes across a boat filled with refugees and feels like she has to help. And we actually watched that on one of the nights. Um, and then another thing was Carola Raketa, the Sea Watch captain who got arrested last year after sailing into an Italian port without permission to bring in 40 refugees and migrants. And he said he had seen her story and that also was really inspiring to him. Yeah, this kind of, uh, of work makes me happy, so uh, last time I get emotions uh, I never had before in my life, so it makes me it makes me sometimes a little bit sad, and also it makes me happy uh, to risk some people and to can help them. Uh, I never had this feeling before. So it actually took us a lot longer than expected to set sail. Um, I think we moved into the boat on a Saturday morning, which I think was in mid-December anyway and we were meant to set sail within two days but then there were problems both with the engine and also crewing problems which meant that we couldn't sail for a week so basically we were just 
getting used to the boat um, and doing a lot of training in terms of like how you deal with rescues, like, you know, even going out in the rubber boats and simulating rescues, people uh, practicing first aid. So um, I was practicing my CPR and yeah, lots of different training, but it was obviously frustrating for everybody to be stuck in port when particularly the volunteers had come thinking that they were going to go to sea. Now, you mentioned again uh, when you wrote your first piece that it, it, it was possible you could go out beyond the sea for several weeks and there might be no rescues, nothing might happen. But actually, as it happened, I think within a very short period of time, there was a rescue. Yeah, so we were two days from the search and rescue zone in Libya. We went out to sea, but then the ship had more technical issues. So we ended up going back to port um, and we stayed in port until Christmas Day. And then we set sail again on Christmas Day for the search and rescue zone. And uh, we got there late on the night of the 26th. And on the 27th, early in the morning, a boat that was in distress called uh, Alarm Phone, which is this organisation that takes distress calls. And Alarm Phone called the Alan Curdy, the ship that I was on, and said, we have this location. Um, we think that there are people in need. Like, can you go look at it? So it wasn't even that far away from us. So the captain set sail. And then at some point, about an hour later, an alarm went off to wake everybody up. There was a briefing which was that we believed that there's going to be a boat with about 30 people on it, and we're looking for it now. Um, we expect to see it in the next hour. We started seeing flashing lights. Then once we got a bit closer, we started hearing shouting as well. I don't see what kind of boat that is. Felix! Um, and so that was the boat that we had been looking for. So two lifeboats were deployed and they each had three people in them. And they basically, the first one will sail up. So everybody's connected by radios. Um, the first one goes up to the boat in distress and does a full circle of it. So what they're first looking for is to see how big is it? What type of boat is it? How many people are on it? And then they go, they try and figure out one person that they can make the contact point, like ideally who speaks whatever language um, someone on the, on the lifeboat speaks. So they then say, because it's very important to make sure that they keep calm because one of the big problems is that people will try and like jump or swim towards the rescue boat. And then that's when like the most casualties can happen. Do you speak English? Okay. These people were very calm and yeah, they just started talking to them and then give them all life vests because, you know, if they jump in the water, then at least they'll be a bit more safe. And once they all have life vests, then they start taking the women and the children first. There are mothers and a possible father on the ship. The children are here. Um, so this boat initially, it was about eight meters, made of fiberglass, and it looked like it was only men on the boat because all the men were outside, like on the deck. Um, they were the ones who were like steering it. They told me like everybody took turns steering it. But then like women and children just started coming out. One woman and five children. And in the end there were ten children and five women, one of them pregnant. 
when the people began to be taken on board, like that was when, like I just remembered the lifeboats coming back with like child after child after child. And particularly at one point, they just kept handing up like tiny, like, you know, babies and toddlers and there was no one left to take them anymore. Like I, one guy called Felix, who's normally the volunteer engineer, I remember him just holding a baby with nowhere to put it, <laughs> just looking very confused. So I think they did stay calm, but then there were obviously a lot of emotions. And when the, particularly when one of the fathers who I mentioned in my story came on, he just burst into tears. Like he was very, very emotional about it. So where were these people from and how many actually were taken on board? They were from Libya and there were 32 of them. And did you get an opportunity then to speak to them to find out what their background was and, you know, what circumstances they were leaving behind and where they were trying to go and so on? Yeah, and it was interesting because most of the people who are making the crossing are, um, they tend to be sub-Saharan Africans coming from countries like you know, Somalia, Eritrea, um, even West Africa as well. And that was what I was expecting, to be honest. I wasn't expecting, like, a full boat of Libyans. And the boat that we, like, they did, from what I've been told, they did have a problem with the engine on the boat, but, like, they were well stocked up. They had about four days' food with them. They were even offering us chocolates and dates after the rescue. And they seemed like they were quite well off and... Um, yeah, I was speaking to them for the next two days and they said that they had fled the war. So um, I'm sure people know that a war started in Tripoli last April um, when Eastern General Khalifa Haftar decided that he was going to try and take over the capital. Um, and he has been, you know, wreaking havoc, basically. Like, there have been airstrikes and rockets and mortars. Like, it's been very... Um, very awful for Libyans and hundreds have died like hundreds of civilians have died and what these people were saying was that they were fleeing the war and also the militias which are effectively running Tripoli even before the the war started they were that they are tired they've seen you know children killed in the streets one of them said his nephew was just shot in the back by a militia at a checkpoint like a militia man and they want safety, they want freedom as well. And so they had tried to get visas for European countries and some of them already had family who were in Europe um, that they were trying to be reunited with and the visas were all rejected. And they actually were showing me, like their pa they brought their passports with them, they were showing me the passports with the visa rejections in them. So what happened then, Sally? Because of course, just because you rescue people, take them on board, that doesn't mean you have a guarantee that you can find a, a safe place, if you like, to, to take them to or a place that will receive them. So what actually happened in this case? So um, pretty much immediately we started sailing back north from like leaving the search and rescue area. And what they try and do is try and get a safe port. So they asked Malta and Malta basically said it's not our responsibility. And then they asked Italy um, and Italy responded actually very quickly like considering because when Salvini was in power they were just saying they wouldn't take anybody at all but this time they responded saying okay like wait um let's let let us look for a port and it took we rescued them early on the 27th and on the night of the 28th we were told that they could be taken into Pozzalo, I'm going to say it's pronounced, um, in Sicily, so a port in Sicily. So it, that was, it, it sounds like it was long, but that was actually relatively fast considering. 
Stamattina mi sono alzato when the Libyans were told that we had found a port of safety in Sicily, they all started singing Bella Ciao, which is an Italian protest song, which I've had stuck in my head for a lot of the time since then. So it was actually very strange arriving in the port because there was like a very large collection of people there. There were people from um, the Red Cross who were like fully kitted out in protective gear who came on the boat and started um, separating out families and people just figuring out who needed medical checkups. And then there were um, people like police, I think military as well, like border guards, just a massive collection, also journalists. Um, there was a big welcoming committee, basically, and they first of all took the families off. Um, there's a pregnant woman, so she was eight months pregnant, and she was also very seasick and was having medical issues, so that she was the first person that they came on and took off. And she was going directly to hospital. She was actually kind of worried because she was told her husband couldn't go with her. But um, I think that they've, they, she was only taken for a few hours in the end and they were reunited. And yeah, they, they're basically brought off to, um, I think it's a reception center. I'm not exactly certain, but I've heard from them since. And they said they basically for six days, they were just questioned, like everything to do with their background. They said for hours and now they're allowed to go outside sometimes. Um, we referred earlier, Sally, to the, 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 the policy issues involved and the fact that the EU changed its approach um, and stopped, EU member states stopped sending search and rescue vessels to pick up people who are otherwise would be, might drown at sea. Now, and the justification offered for that change in policy, as I understand it, is essentially that there is an argument that these rescue ships are um, possibly in the long run putting migrants and refugees in more danger because... They, they sort of act as an incentive or a magnet, if you like, for smugglers to essentially dump people at sea, knowing that there would be boats there to, to pick them up. Um, what's your own view of that argument? And I'm wondering as well, is that something you had a chance to discuss with the, the, the crew of the Alan Curdy at any stage? Yeah, I did discuss it with them and they rejected it. They said, like... Um, you know, the people that they meet at sea, they're desperate, like, and they don't necessarily know about the rescue ships. Um, I mean, I think from from myself talking with people who are in Libya, particularly those who are trapped in this cycle of detention centres, like they are trying to evaluate the best way out. And so I know that if they have friends, say, who have been rescued by a rescue ship and they hear about it, they might kind of reevaluate going to sea rather than staying because most of them are trying to get legal um, legal evacuation through UN processes, which essentially will evaluate their asylum claim. But, you know, that takes years and years and isn't definite at all. And so I do think that if they hear of lots of people going to the sea and actually reaching Europe, it makes them think about it a bit more. But having said that, they're still desperate to find a way out. So either way, they're going to be looking for a way out. In principle, the idea that it would be more efficient and safer to process asylum applications in Libya before people, you know, risk their lives by taking to the sea. The the, the principle is a good one, isn't it? I mean, it doesn't work like that because 
um, asylum applications aren't processed in Libya at the moment. So actually what happens is people are evacuated to usually to either Niger or Rwanda or sometimes Romania. And that's where the asylum application is processed because it's seen as a safer place to be able to do that. And then they're resettled to another country. But the speed of that is very, very slow. Like it's around 2,000 people a year are taken out legally. And there are a huge number more who who have, you know, what what seem like very valid asylum claims. Um, but also, sorry, on the pull factor, what I was going to say is, you know, it was something that I was thinking about too, and the, both the Sea Watch 3, so rescue ship Sea Watch 3, and also MFSF's um, Ocean Viking have been in the search and rescue zone, I think, for the last two weeks, and they haven't done any rescues. So the idea that, you know, their presence would mean that smugglers are sending people out actually isn't valid you know because because if it was they would have rescued someone by now and just remind us Sally of the conditions in which people you know migrants and refugees are detained in 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 Libya people who are seeking to uh, make this crossing to Europe yeah the conditions are really horrific um so I think at the moment around 5,000 people are locked up in uh detention centers that are associated with the government um where Things like rape, um, forced labour, uh, random starvation, um, lack of medical care, all of those are pretty common. Um, and these are people who are kind of trapped in this cycle. So like we mentioned with the EU, um, the changing EU policy. So they've tried to get to Europe already. They've been intercepted at the sea by the Libyan Coast Guard. They're brought back to Libya. They're locked up indefinitely or at least until they can pay enough money to the guards to be able to uh, try the sea again. Um, and yeah, the conditions are just really, really terrible. And that was what was interesting actually um, kind of looking forward in terms of what might happen with different migration trends like that those were the people that I was expecting that we um, that might be rescued by the Alan Kurdi ship but instead it was Libyans and that actually shows really how desperate the situation has become so even though the EU is involved in returning people to Libya like Libya is now war torn and even Libyans are trying to escape in these routes. And I anticipate that more and more Libyans are going to try and do this. And that was my impression also by speaking to the Libyans who were on the Alan Kurdi. You wrote in an end of year review piece that in decades to come, historians will look back on the way Europe is treating refugees and migrants with fascinated horror. Um, in regard to the Mediterranean route in particular, what changes in an approach would you like to see made? I mean, for me, I'm a journalist. I'm not like an activist or a campaigner. So um, I kind of see my role more as making sure that people are aware of these implications of European policy. Like I, you know, speaking to aid workers who work in Libya, they say that's what what's needed are more legal routes, you know. So it's legal routes to safety that are what what everybody is desperate for. Like people with valid asylum claims are stuck in this quandary that once they can reach European soil, they can make their claim and they have their international right to protection respected. But if they're in Libya, they have no way out or, you know, they're desperate to find a way out so that they can make that claim. Um, and so I don't think, I think there's this misconception that it's people looking for, you know, money or something like that. And that was interesting talking to the Libyans because they kept saying this isn't about money. Like we we come from good backgrounds. We have houses like we have this, we have that. But actually 
we're you know we're just desperate for somewhere that we feel safe and I thought it was worth um, reading this message that I've received since publishing these stories because I've actually been getting a lot more messages from Libyans who say that they want to escape Libya and one of them was from a woman she wrote I wish I had the courage to do like the families you found in the sea at least I would feel fear once not every single day my dream for these days is just to have a future the atmosphere is filled with sadness and the smell of blood a lot. This morning, instead of the sounds of birds, there are the sounds of bombings. Sally, thanks for coming in.